The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. No my hockey my kia the fold imihine kodangrive tokungwa my guest today is uh, is a, it's a huge one it's a get well for, for me uh, and, and I'm sure for listeners of this podcast it's Shane Curry the media insider himself the former managing editor of the Herald uh, former editor of the the Herald and the Herald on Sunday a and you know deputy editor of the Sunday Star Times, a, a person, basically a, a print media lifer who spent the thick end of 20 years in, in various sort of senior editorial executive roles. And um, before earlier this year, abruptly resigning to, to become a reporter again. And, you know, I think it, it was a kind of a quixotic move. It's, it's not really what, what people tend to do from those positions. Uh, but he very quickly he adopted this persona, media insider, for for a column which I remember seeing him out at uh, an event the, the week at launch, and it was absolutely groaning with with scoops. I think it was around the time that Today FM was melting down, and and I said to him, I was like, "You can't keep this up, mate. Like we're living through a very kind of tight period of a lot of stuff going on, but mostly it's boring." And he was like, "Oh, we'll see, we'll see." And uh, and honestly, he's he's proven me he's proven me dead wrong. The the Media Insider is is a weekly column that comes out digitally on a Friday and and uh, mostly runs in the weekend herald on on a saturday and you know it's made up of these kind of you know a few different pieces there's normally like a, a chunky lead and then uh, a few smaller stories out the back but it is delicious gossipy uh he, he breaks stories in it quite regularly it's it's i think by far the best uh media writing particularly about journalism but also about the industry more broadly uh going in new zealand now and that's basically a function of him having been in these amazing roles for for 20 years you know he's gracious enough to to kind of point to the herald's newsroom in terms of uh, putting him on to some stories but you can really just feel how much he knows and how and, and what his contact book is like in terms of the shape of the column there has been a sense that he is much more gentle on on his employer NZ Me than than on their fierce rival stuff. That's entirely founded. Uh, the stuff stories are reported with a a level of glee that is border, borders on unseemly at times, and I'm sure has been you know pretty tough reading for people in stuff management. 
But ultimately, we're all grown-ups here, and they have every facility. They also buy ink by the the barrel, so uh, you know we'll, we'll and and have enjoyed reporting on the Herald's travails at various times. This is probably the way it will always be. Um, I certainly would hope so. Uh, so you know, it, you have to read it through that lens. But if you do, it's just the most enjoyable thing to to do on a, on a Friday morning. But not only that, he's been he's been writing stories. Um, yeah, big big stories for the Herald and and started a, a shameless ripoff of the lunch with the FT uh, you know, period as a sort of an occasional uh, running in in print and online as well. Uh, basically, he looks like he's having the absolute best time and is working seemingly about thirty six hours a day and. I just, I've really, really enjoyed watching Shane, who's someone you know we've dealt with as, uh, you know, the, the spinoff has had business relationships with with the Herald off and on for most of the time we've been around. Shane's always been really decent to me, even at times when I've written things, which have, I'm sure, you know, much of stuff have been annoyed with him. I'm sure he's been annoyed with me, and that's all of us just sort of doing our jobs, I guess. But, um, but. Just, just a, a, a terrific guy and a a really good sport. I think, in the sense of you, it won't be for everyone. But if you if you read the column or if you're interested in the kind of the way that this the media is evolving and the kind of the the sort of gossip and um, you know rivalries and tactical plays that that ultimately power this business then it, then it's uh it's it's a great column and hopefully this is a great listen so this is Shane Curry the media insider on the fold huge huge day got the uh, the media insider himself Shane Curry welcome to the fold thanks thanks very much Duncan the cross fertilization <laughs> uh, media insider and the fold it's been well, a long time coming the, the, the people the people have been baying for it and the day's <laughs> finally arrived I'm, I'm thrilled about it and uh, but I wonder if we could, could we could start right at the start for you um, and and if you could just tell me basically how you how you got into this uh, this terrible situation that we call journalism you know your, your way into this this trade yeah well I I still remember the day at uh, Tauranga Boys College where I was sitting in English class and journalism was offered as a sixth form subject. I was, it was in the fifth form at the time and, and a light went off for me. It was, it, you know, it was as simple as that, that journalism was suddenly being offered as a subject in the following year. It's amazing to think and of I, that as and part I of thought, the curriculum. And I thought, yeah, I thought that's me because I loved English and I loved things like geography and a little bit of history. I hated maths. And anyone who's worked with me in the last um, <laughs> couple of decades will know that um, budgets are not my strong point. <laughs> and so, uh, but certainly the written word uh, and and language um, was uh, of huge interest to me. We had a, a, a famous newspaper at Tauranga Voice College called the, called the Hillsdean Reflector, and I became editor of that the following year as well. And that was famous for over many years, over many decades, correctly polling the boys at the school and predicting the election outcome every three years. So, uh, you know, it was, I think, in 1987, and uh, we correctly predicted the, um, the Cold, result there as well. Yeah, following. that got a bit of a few national headlines for that as well. So fun days, and then moved into into ATI Journalism School in 1989 under Jim Tucker and Jeff Black and Susan Boyd-Bell, um, you know, famous names in, in, in New Zealand journalism. So were you, were you always, was it always print for you? Were you a consumer of any other kind of media? Yeah, all news, all news really, yeah. and uh, has been the case ever since. Obviously newspapers early on um, were very much my um, 
bread and butter and the written form, but that's evolved over time. Um, but certainly television news back in the day and radio news on the hour, news junkies still am, and very much now in that digital mindset, story first mindset and knowing just, I mean, we've got so much data available, right, in terms of what we know, what the audience is, how they're reading and watching and listening. That, that we just didn't have that back in the early 90s and through even in the early days of the internet. Um, when you, amazing. You, yeah, I guess you just had like, how'd, how'd the front page go at newsstands kind of thing was was the big That's right. You'd big get, data point. And you'd get the data two or three days later. And for the dailies, you know, that was often too late. Um, yeah, the weeklies, it was, weeklies it was okay. But, uh, but, you know, it was journalistic instinct and, oh, <laughs> you know, sort of lick your finger and put it to the wind and we think the story might go well. And I think, unfortunately, that saw the demise of quite a few newspapers in the, in the day because they weren't really reflecting audience demand or audience interest. It's funny. I mean, just to quickly, as an aside, like there is, a, we get more feedback than, than ever now. I would argue too much um, mm. in the social media era, and often there are these sort of critiques of stories that become kind of memes. So the the twenty four year old has got three houses, and uh, the you know the business owner moving to Australia is is the current one. But my answer to that is is always that that is ultimately a f reflection of audience demand. You know. There are more stories like that because people are reading the ones that, that are up there. Is that true, or, or you know, like to what extent is is the homepage of the Herald now a product of uh, you know a sort of demand, or uh, or you know what what the actual kind of fundamental news moment? It's, uh, it's a combination of both, and always will be. Um, but you've got to also remember that that top half of the Herald homepage is 15 stories. Now, the Herald produces 250 stories a day, and so not all of them are going to um, feature in that top half of the Herald homepage. We have started personalising some of the spots there, so you will now be being delivered stories in a couple of those spots that others aren't getting delivered, and that's based on your reading history. Um, and your interests. And we also have a recommended recommendation spot, which is also bespoke to you personally. And so what we're trying to do without being an echo chamber, but actually start to personalise that homepage a little more. So if you do hate that story about the 24-year-old <laughs> and you haven't clicked on it um, previously, you won't get served a similar story. I mean, that's ultimately like a sort of a TikTokification of news, like a for you page. Yeah. Because the thing Within, is... But being careful about it. Yeah. We don't want it to be, you know, truly, fully um, personalised. We do think that there is, still has to be that journalistic instinct, the importance of the news agenda and delivering views and opinions and news that you might not necessarily um, like or agree with, but we think is important. I, 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 I totally agree. The, the thing that's one thing that's quite interesting about that for me is that, you know, there, there's, that's been a long kind of running, oh, yeah, this is very niche, but it's a niche podcast, so we're fine. But um, critique of the media that it hasn't sort of embraced the sort of technology to, to allow for that kind of thing. But then, you know, I'm a, like I'm sure you are a voracious reader of the New York Times, and it always surprised me the extent to which their mobile app homepage, which I assume is is pretty, you know, one of if not the most highly trafficked um, part of what they do, is it's the same stories, and they they run for like 24 hours. In fact, it it, mm. mo it moves much more slowly than you know either either staff or, or the Herald's homepage, and they'll they'll run a story for three days, yeah. you know, so. And that's that's got they've got I think over a thousand devs like like if, if an organisation at that scale isn't moving 
um, heavily into personalization. You know, there sort of has to be a reason for it. And I think some of that is, you know, Soldierberg wrote, wrote a very good essay recently about, you know, having sort of standing up for what is, uh, what what news is in a way that, um, you know, the, the the kind of social platforms can can never compete with, and that ultimately sort of feels like it's part of what you're you're doing with Media Insider, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know, having now gone back to the front line, I guess of you know writing and reporting, you know, I've taken a view that yeah, we do have to actually slow down on that homepage a lot more and keep, you know, the in-depth premium material there, and that and that's and we maybe can tap into this as well, but that those premium stories do stay on some of them stay on the homepage for 24 hours, sometimes even longer on a weekend, uh, you know, especially if they're obviously drawing in um, subscribers and engaging subscribers. So in that respect, you know, so around half the stories at the moment are premium stories in that top 15. They tend to, to have less churn. Um, they stay around for much longer, whereas the free stories tend to be more breaking news, fast developing stories. And so by net na- na- naturally do sort of get turned over a lot more quickly. I think, and I want to get into some of kind of the, the uh, you know, how the, how the homepage functions for the Herald um, in a bit, but let's just sort of jump back into, I think, a, a pretty pivotal moment uh, for you that you were right up close with was was the launch of the Herald on Sunday, which, um, you know, that was probably the last major newspaper title launched in, in New Zealand. And, you know, you were deputy editor, I think, from launch. It pulled you away from, you know, the company that is now known as Stuff and, and to a, what is now a 20-year career at NZME. Do you want to talk about... And, and, it, and it contained, you know, innovations. It was a tabloid format for, for a Sunday, for a you know, quality uh, Sunday paper. Um, tell me about what it was like to kind of figure out a newspaper sort of on the fly, how it interacted with the rest of the, the Herald and um, and what you learned through that process. Yeah, well, it was a hugely exciting project and this is back in 2004. So, you know, Facebook really was only just starting. Social media wasn't really... We had MySpace, that was it, I think. Um, <laughs> At the Herald itself, um, there was separate kind of the Herald. Um, there was online, but there was a separate department on a separate floor. I'd spent 15 years at Fairfax and previous to that, INL, as you say, eventually became stuff. And I'd um, it become the deputy editor of the Sunday Star Times. And there were a few changes there that, and a few changes happening at uh, what was then APN, including the development of the Herald on Sunday. I didn't actually know what the project was when I was first approached about it. I made to sign you know, NDA and so forth, but uh, hugely exciting. And just to give you that sort of the level of investment that the company was making in it, we, we were um, tasked, the, the, the first very few editors who were brought on board, there were about three or four of us, to find 40 staff within about four or five weeks. Um, Phenomenal. I mean, uh, the, the scale of the journalism industry in New Zealand then versus now. Totally. I mean, 40 staff to put out. We didn't have to worry about online. That was a separate department, as I say. So all of our journalism was handled digitally by another department. These 40 staff uh, were completely focused on putting out one edition of one newspaper every weekend. And there was nothing to do with the Weekend Herald, nothing to do with the Daily. That's right. And we, In fact, we were in separate physical buildings. Now, you know, in hindsight, you look back on it. I think APN did actually want it to be kind of um, a separate um, organisation almost or a separate newsroom, definitely. We were probably considered barbarians at the gate by the traditional Herald um, newsroom in those days and by APN because we were purposely brought in to 
break, I guess, the six-day Herald. Uh, they didn't want it to be a seventh day of what, what people had already seen. It had to be kind of a more middle market um, compact newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> we were, that was ingrained in us, not the T word, compact, not tabloid. A newspaper to come in and try to find that middle market between the Sunday Star Times, the broadsheet as it was then, and the Sunday News. Um, all good in theory, but it took a good year to really find its feet in the well, market. Well, it's quite interesting, you know. I, I, I never worked there, but but um, but so read it. But uh, the it did feel like it. It was a sort of a, a different part of the market to the, the Herald was the the sort of you know there was the kind of Granny Herald mm. nickname that that it had, and the Sunday Star Times had tried to basically occupy that sort of seventh day that that the Herald had left there, and the you know one of the kind of ways that you could really feel the difference was Rachel Glucina was uh, was a was she was founding or she came, came in, on? Yeah, she came in a little bit later actually. Um, I mean, the whole philosophy behind it was we saw the Sunday Star Times and as a broadsheet in those days, its circulation was increasing every audit period to, by the time I'd left as deputy editor, it reached about 220,000, I think. And the advertising market was growing. And I think APN quite clearly saw the opportunity there to mm. have a decent bite of that pie. But yes, um, in terms of the content mix to start with, in that first six months, I mean, we were, we'd done a lot of research with the marketing team at the Herald. Um, the, in, in terms of the design and the, and the kind of um, market that it was pitched at. And unfortunately, it, there were quite a few, I guess, there were hits and misses and there were quite a few misses in that first year. And that, and I include the time when I was editor and um, it wasn't until we started trialling a few different things on the front page and a bolder design, less text. Um, it was simple things like that to capture the kind of retail market first and foremost. Uh, to try and build the circulation that way because we had all the Herald subscribers. They were getting the seventh day as part of their six-day or five-day deal. So we were fine in that respect. We had to be a bit careful about brand values. But the retail was where we were focusing our early That's where it was won and lost. Mm. But because, I mean, the, the reason I raised um, Glucina was that, you know, that was the, the Sunday Star Times had Bridget Saunders mm. who felt like, yeah, and, and, and it felt like it's weird to think, like, was... Was there a is the social scene the same as it ever was? There just aren't people covering it, or was that a real moment? The, you know, when you had the sort of Adam Prory, Matthew Ridge, Nikki Watson, Eric Watson, kind of like that whole you know era just felt. And, and they, they when you had the pair of them competing to cover it, it felt like a real moment. But it is gossip is next to news, but it's not quite the same thing. How you know, as an editor, how did you sort of handle that aspect of it? Yeah, um, and when I think back, you know, um, Rachel did play a big part in the kind of the news agenda as well. A lot of the material that she was uncovering um, did actually reach the front page or the news pages totally. of the paper. I think we we're in a time as well. I mentioned Facebook only just starting. I think we we're in a time when television was still a big part of our lives, terrestrial television. So the likes of Ridge and Alice, um, Lana Cocroft, all these people were big celebrity names and you, you didn't see them. Nowadays, that's kind of, uh, there's been a kind of dissolution, I guess, of celebrity in a way and that we see them all the time on TikTok or, or um, Twitter. Or It's sort of flattened and expanded it, the market to the point where there are very few people who have the same cut through that they did Totally, then. totally. So it's very easy now to, for anybody to actually engage with a celebrity and quite marked, you know, whether that's through social media or what have you. Gossip still gossip still plays an important role for the you know, the Herald on Sunday nowadays. Ricardo does yeah. a you know, does a great job with spy still. Um, it's a lot softer, um, and I get that, and I get why, and you know, I 
I've said publicly in the past that, you know, I put a lot of um, responsibility at my feet around some of the gossip pages back in the day just went a little too far. What do you think kind of created the environment where some of those, uh, you know, journalistic sort of scandals or getting close to the edge where it sort of came out of, of that era. Yeah, I wrote recently about the John Manakia case. Um, and, you know, I I look back at that. I, there's a lot of sadness about that case, actually. Um, that just, was where, just, just if people don't know, he... he basically fabricated an interview and it turned out that there was more than that. Quite a number, unfortunately, yes. And so, uh, you know, and I talked in the Media Insider column about sitting in the news meeting on a Tuesday morning and getting a phone call from John Haig QC. It was a really powerful piece. Because we'd thought that John had just secured, John Manakir had just secured an amazing interview in the previous weekend's newspaper with um, a disgraced police officer who'd been charged. Uh, And in fact, the entire interview was fabricated. And so... John Haig, who represented the police officer, QC, <laughs> ringing me saying, um, my client's got an issue and that he said he's never spoken to your reporter. Uh, now, so I spoke to the reporter there and then because we were in the news meeting and he was adamant that the interview had occurred. There were, there were um, notes from the so-called interview. I rang John Haig back feeling very you know, proud <laughs> and chuffed that the reporter had notes. The bullish and, editor. Uh, yeah. And um, later in the day, John... Um, called me back and said, no. I said, well, the only way we can resolve this is if we get the two of them into the room and we sort this out. So I went back out into the newsroom to find the reporter and unfortunately um, he'd gone and we couldn't find him for another four or five days. And that obviously was an indication that all was not well. Uh, And in fact, you're right, we subsequently, as a result of an audit, we found other stories and Fairfax, who had previously worked with, did the same and found a pattern there as well. So terribly sad case. Bad that it hadn't been picked up earlier. Um, and, of course, you know, that's that led to all sorts of reviews and just the way we... But I think, you know, the point I, I was trying to make, partly the point I was trying to make in that Media Insider article, and it came back to that, I was trying to draw it back to the recent RNZ digital journalist issue, mm. is that you can have all the checks and balances in place in any newsroom or organisation. If that final set of eyes... Um, makes an error, whether that's intentional or otherwise, it's still going to lead to issues. Um, and that that really was the kind of the, one of the points I was trying to make. It's not fail-safe totally, you know, when you're dealing with human behaviour. But you think about the level of resourcing we had then versus, versus now, you know, you'd almost expect it to happen more and it almost feels like it's happening less. And to, in, to my mind, you know... It's it's a complicated thing the the you know the the impact of the shrinking of newsrooms on the quantity quality and and sort of distribution of journalism you know someone someone on the podcast a few months ago was talking about the the number of stories that were just generated for TV news that just never would never aired and there was nowhere else for them to go and that mm-hmm. was it was an era of an abundance of talent and a and a and an absolute confined amount of space and that's now sort of, sort of inverted in a way how how important was that sort of that level of competition that existed um then you know between newspapers and news organizations to creating that that sort of quite electric atmosphere yeah. of the, the era yeah look i i'm all for competition and that was hugely competitive and probably you know in a print sense uh, in those days the only really uh, market where there was competition you know um apn and uh uh, INL as it was in those days clearly had regional newspapers in different parts of the country but that none of them were really competing 
And so the Sunday market was, you know, very pointed. Um, but that that should never have um, been to the extent where if that was causing issues within newsrooms around quality and trust. And as I say, I think the case of the uh, the John Manakia case, I think that was kind of deep, more deeply rooted in, in other issues, sadly. Um, but having said that, yeah, I you know I look back on um, you know the Herald on Sunday broke some amazing stories and and has. Um, been the birthplace of many great journos, many of you know their bylines are still around today uh, in the Herald newsroom and beyond. And so I'm really proud of the team that we built up there. It was fun days, it was great days, um, you know. And there was that kind of spirit that you um, you just love every newsroom to um, to enjoy at some point in your in, in your career. But the um, but certainly, I think you know we also had to be very careful that that competition didn't lead to shortcuts or you know, um, you know, a lack of, you know, undermining quality and trust. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So it was a few years on. I mean, it's it's sort of a funny thing to think about the way that the internet sort of was at a slow drip, you know, mm. the, uh, into the because it impacts you in multiple different ways, right? Like like there's an economic impact. There is a sort of you know where where the breaking news power sits. There is a Sort of a level of, uh, comp, you know, uh, d- different sources of competition um, for different elements, but both in terms of the, the product and the advertising that that fueled it. Well, was there a moment or that where you sort of thought, actually, hang on, this thing's really coming for us here, or, or was it a sort of a slow drip where you just sort of woke up and things had had changed? Yeah, it was a slow drip. I think you know, and if you, we go right back to 1998 when NZHerald.co was created and stuff, a couple of years later. And we've said in the past, and this is the same the world over, media owners and um, administrators, we we made a huge mistake in terms of um, not putting a price point, uh, some form of uh, paywall or uh, on that content at that time. But we were all in the um, arrogant belief that uh, print would last forever. Digital was not necessarily a passing phase, but would never overtake the importance of print. How naive were we? Uh, But anyway, the slow drip did, I think it wasn't really... um, Duncan until the early 2010s, and I actually remember sitting. I'd been at, crossed over into the Herald uh, main newsroom by then, as deputy editor and news editor, and I was the, looking after the um, nighttime shift. And I remember the next morning we were having a meeting to look at this new fandangled um, thing called a Herald app. <laughs> so, you know, and I looked at it with. I remember Kathy O'Sullivan presenting it, and it was amazing. And I thought that was probably one kind of trigger point, but it wasn't really then. And, Again, until 2014-15, when we brought the newsrooms fully together. That's the three newsrooms online, Daily Herald, Herald on Sunday, that it became a digital first, a truly kind of um, digital focused um, organisation. And it's funny when you look at, you know, that's one of the takeaways from RNZ just yesterday as we record this, they've, they've kind of released the their findings and said that, you know, that that's one of the issues they have is that they still 
as of right now, have a, a radio newsroom and, and a digital newsroom, and that's where some of the issues mm -hmm. came from. What was there resistance from the, the the newsrooms in terms of that that process? I think what it was, um, we were off, operating in silos, so that we, you know, the the main engine room of the Herald, sure, their stories and, and f photography and videos were being presented online, but not really being kind of. Um, given any kind of sense of audience size or engagement or times of day that people were reading. There was still very much a focus on three deadlines for print and that the newsroom rosters were set up to that to that extent and, you know, there was still a lot of pride, still is to this day, about getting your name on the front page of the newspaper. Mm. Uh, that That's still vitally important for um, a lot of journos, of course. But um, times have changed. We are now at a point now where we're story and audience first, and so and that's been through the shared knowledge of analytics and data. I, I agree with you that you know we can get swamped in that stuff from too much at times, uh, but also knowing just how people are reading our content or watching it, what you know, getting better direction on would this be a better as a podcast or better as a video rather than a six hundred word story or a feature, and so you know we've had to take the newsroom along. Along that, and I think the newsroom is now. I think one of the biggest challenges for any editor and leader these days is ensuring that journalists know the business of the company overall. I think sometimes journalists, whether it's through their own intentions or they've been kind of left out of the equation at times in terms of being shared some of the, you know, the P and L lines even for um, for the overall business and letting them know just exactly how the business is affairing. So, I want to you know what we're coming up to, and and that's a. A, a nice segue into into the your your sort of your big change from earlier this year. But um, before then, I wanted to just sort of uh, just talk about the because the Herald's pay the Herald's paywall effectively. And I remember one day I, I feel like I encountered the paywall in the wild in like 2015. I, I swear I didn't hallucinate it. It was like it was like a test registration kind of thing. And I couldn't replicate it and. But there was there was a lot of rumor, and I, I don't even know if you know, potentially Drennan might even have reported to the extent to which the paywall was sort of right there. And then I think maybe Jane Hastings uh, potentially pu pushed it in another direction. How how close did the Herald get um, prior to the the sort of launch proper of the paywall? And do you sort of think back about you know obviously you talked about the original sin of the uh, the free content in the '90s, but you know the you basically don't learn. You start learning from the day that you launched the paywall. So had mm. the Herald done it in 2014, 15, 16, you know, things might be even further advanced than they are now. Yeah, uh, quite potentially. I, yeah, we looked at it on and off and mainly on for a long time. And I think in, and I wasn't at the Herald myself at the time, but there was a kind of a foray into having columnists behind the uh, paywall very early on, which didn't go so well. It was very leaky and easy to kind of... Um, to find that content. So that model didn't work very early on. But you're right, when, when Jane came in as um, CEO, yes, there was we looked at it very closely then um, and there was a project underway. But at that time, just as we were bringing the newsrooms together and you know with this new bold approach on digital and audience, there was also a, a market there for advertising and so ensuring that we built up, I guess, the funnel as big as possible, the biggest, widest audience in, in as many years as we could before we started then venturing down the paywall route. So there was um, a deliberate strategy to move, to keep it free for a, um, 
at least a few more years. So it wasn't really until t obviously 2019 is when we pushed go, but there'd been probably a good four or five years of preparation in, in one form or another before that. And that's ultimately given you a sort of a four-year jump on on your major rivals and, and staff who, who launched their sort of suite of paywalls a few months ago. What, what is it that you as an organisation sort of learned or how does it fundamentally alter the kind of journalism you make and what you do with it once that paywall is, is out there? Yeah, it's well, there's, there's several aspects to it. One is actually talking to the journalists. Um, some love their stories behind the paywall, some don't. You know, that's just natural. Some would love a mass audience, whereas... You know, the, the sort of impact journalism idea, right? Yeah, and, and others um, see the benefit of it being behind the paywall because your story actually stays on the homepage for longer. You actually get as many views as a free story. So there's kind of a discussions going on all the time around you know the differences and there's actually human decisions still being made about what is paywalled and what isn't. Mm. And that will sometimes depend on if it's a quiet news day and we do need something exclusive to lead the site, it, it will come out from behind the paywall. And so that's kind of a real-time decision-making being led by the content chiefs in the, in the newsroom. But, uh, but by and large, it, what it has led to under the direction of both Miriana Alexander and Murray Kirkness, uh, you know, we, we, we're a great team. Uh, we've got a great newsroom. And over time, what it has led to is deeper um, analytics about the types of stories that are working well, um, obviously, there's all the free breaking news and developing stories that continue to happen, and that's still vital for that mass audience. But over time, we've come to learn some of the subject matters um, that work really well and which enable us to carry out some deeply engaging journalism. Um, and that's whether that's in the business space, sport, po politics, and of course, um, opinion. Opinion forms a big part of our premium menu. Do, do you, you know, there's there is a criticism. I've certainly voiced it from time to time about the the sort of mismatch of the kind of news.com.au type um, very clickable stories sitting alongside these quite, you know, sophisticated pieces of premium reporting. And, you know, I know, for example, that, you know, in, in Western Australia, they have, uh, you know, I think it's, is it the Western Australian and Perth now, you know, they, they basically just created two brands because they felt yeah. like they could never square that circle. And it is a bit atypical for a news brand. Do, do you, you know, let's talk to you as yeah. a media insider. Do, do you see that there, that that's a valid critique or do you, can you imagine a stage where there is actually a, a sort of an attempt to kind of, at the very least, serve a, a kind of highbrow premium homepage to your logged in users versus the kind of, you know, the very Megan Markley kind of uh, approach that, that's the the free stuff? Yeah, so there's a couple of points there. So personalisation will play a big part of that um, discussion, but we've pulled out of the news.com um, agreement now, so which is good, or they pulled out um, because they want to build their own kind of business model. Uh, that's interesting. And Has so, that been reported? <laughs> well, there you go, you've got a scoop. <laughs> Um, so you won't see news.com material anymore. We pulled out the Daily Mail deal about five years ago. So, but, but you know, a mass um, media website like the Herald still has to have a fine balance of, you know, um, Murray Kirkness often talks about fruit and vegetables, but we also want the ice cream and, you know, the sweet stuff as well. Yeah. Lifestyle and entertainment plays a hugely important part of that. But all of it needs to be, whether it's behind the paywall or not, it needs to be well-written, well yeah. um, pre premium content, you know, look bit, at, like of what you guys do. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, you know, and, you know, thankfully now we've um, also, 
you know, inked a new deal, which um, which is fantastic as well. But we've got a great lifestyle and entertainment team who will pull together the Royals coverage. We've got partnerships with the likes of R Media as well. So there's really great content coming from within the business and with our partners to balance that harder-edged kind of biz- premium business and political. Um, in terms of then, is there an opportunity to deliver just a premium business? Of course, we've invested and bought Business Desk in the last couple of years, so that plays a huge part Such of NZME's subscription strategy. Yeah. The Herald itself, I think, with personalization and recommendation, if you're a C-suite member of the C-suite at, say, in New Zealand, your, what you're being served up is on the Herald homepage will be slightly different to what um, maybe somebody sitting in a lounge in Te Awamutu is um, reading. I feel like sometimes <laughs> I get the lounge in Te Awamutu feed, but I'll, I'll just have to speak to the subs desk about that. Um, so let's just talk now about the Media Insider. This, um, you know, Firstly, your decision to step down and then to step into this new kind of identity that... Has you know, as, as for people working in the media, you know, like you know, this this is this is must read kind of times like quite popcorn kind of. There's there's just there's a real kind of culture around it. Um, tell me what drove the decision and then the 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 the, the idea to focus on on the business, yeah. the, the broader business. Yes, yeah, so I'd been managing editor for eight years, and I went to Michael Boggs, our CEO, earlier this year, and I could see you know that there were another tough year ahead in terms of. Um, you know, and I just needed a change. I needed a refresh. I took my cue from you, actually, uh, <laughs> in terms of your your own move, but also others as well. Um, you know, I, I, and I think we've seen quite a few changes at the top of our media companies in the last few weeks and months, and I get it. We've had, you know, I, I remember at the end of 2019 telling the newsroom, we'll never have a busier news year. You know, <laughs> we'll never, this, this will be a once-in-a-lifetime. David um, Bowie died. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, and all sorts of things, you yeah. know. <laughs> sporting events and unfortunately the mosque shootings and so forth. That was a massive news year. Yeah. And then, of course, we get to 2020 and, you know, all of our lives were upheaved. And so, and that's just been the same every year since. And so um, I just thought time for a change for me personally. I think it would be good for the newsroom to have refreshed leadership. And But I loved the business and I said to Michael, I proposed the role of editor-at-large um, based on, you know, a lot of other similar roles um, around the globe and locally. Uh, I hadn't quite figured out the media column. I sort of said to Michael, you know, I'd like to, you know, one area I do, know, I guess, know a little bit about is media. Let, uh, may, maybe, maybe there's an opportunity there, but it wasn't really until the first two or three columns that I thought, oh, I better start doing this every week. <laughs> and, um, it, it, really? really? Yeah, it was really. It wasn't really put down on paper as a kind of. I said to Michael, look, I can commit to a couple of really good, decent pieces a week. I've also got some other um, strategic um, things I have to be doing for the business as well, which is important um, to balance that. And but yeah, media inside is kind of I, I love doing it. It's um, you, yeah, you can tell it's such a, an interesting phase of well, and you know the ever changing landscape is just right now. You know, just about every media business is undergoing some form of transformation or change, and um, by and large, um, they're willing to talk about it. And uh, you know, and yes, it impacts people and it impacts personalities. I'm trying to make it a column which where people obviously can trust me to talk to them, whether that's on background or, you know, up front, uh, and to try and also make it of interest to the wider public. So yes, I'll try and have personalities in there and a kind of a hook, if you like, to, to, to make it of broader interest, but also get into the business of journalism. 
Um, trying to do a little bit of marketing and advertising, but I'm kind of still got my training wheels on there as well. So, you know, I'm meeting contacts all the time in those industries. I think there's an opportunity for an advertising inside a column, you know, or a marketing inside a column. Um, you know, the, these industries are rich with people who um, are doing great things. I, I'm really optimistic about our media industry, um, but I do know that it's a tough time at the moment, obviously. You know, we've experienced that ourselves uh, at NZB and all the other media companies have, are the same. I mean, what, what I really, one of the things I think it does um, very well is in focusing on a broad definition of media in, in the local sense, it, I think it makes the case for the sort of socio-cultural power of uh, domestically created media uh, and professionally made domestically created media versus the kind of maelstrom of, of social and, and user-generated content and says that there is something different here. And just because, you know, some of the media companies or people in government might say, well, this is just audiences or this is just, you know, an advertising rate, I think what you do with that is say, actually, think about the kinds of people who, who consume these different types of media, what... You know their power, the the way that it influences them, and I, I you know that's a sort of an undercurrent of it. But I think it it really matters, and it's actually a benefit to the whole industry. Even though at times I'm sure there are people, and we'll we'll get to it, who who don't love everything that that exists in the column. Was that sort of that sort of flow on both narrowly for NZME, but also uh, broader, more broadly for the industries that that are captured by it? Was was that part of the thinking too that it would kind of remind people that it, it's still here and it actually matters in a quite specific way. Yeah, totally. And look, we've had media columns off and on over the years and I know how well read they were and, and so forth. And I did see a gap there. And I think there are lots of interesting things going on. You know, there's change going on all the time, but there's you know huge amounts of innovation and inspiration as well. So I want to tap into a lot of that. I mean, you write about a lot of this yourself, um, Duncan, with, with your um, columns. And so, you know, I, I actually think there's so much interest um, in the media generally, uh, and that's from the wider public as well. But also, um, you know, I love talking about the people. I don't, I, I don't want it to be gossipy. I know some Rick Neville, one of my old mentors, gave me a rap over the knuckles a few weeks ago. He reckoned it was too gossipy, and he was probably right, you know, in terms of. But it's got to be fun, right? It's got to be a balance of personalities, yeah. but also I'm trying each, each week to have two or three core business type pieces or. Um, you know, deeper and meaningful pieces, if you like. So, but yes, I, I'm also told I've overwritten it too many times, and I need a good editor to cut me back. So, <laughs> I've, I've heard people say that. I, I personally disagree. I'm like, I just need more. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it could sound to be five or six thousand words. Is that that's mm. my feedback? One thing that that is kind of has been present in it, off and on from the start, and and you had an absolute scorcher of a. Um, of a gossipy scoop early on was Gongate at, at stuff. And I just wondered if you could kind of talk a bit about how you manage the fact that one of your, you know, the stuff newsroom seems to be quite leaky to, towards you at the moment. And that that kind of slightly queasy thing where you are writing about a direct competitor of mm. the, the paper that you're, um, that you're publishing in and mm. the inevitability that... You know, were you, were you to apply the same rules to the Herald News, which I'm sure you know you yeah. get information about all the time, 
you know, yeah. How, how do you sort of manage that that conflict yourself personally? Yeah, yeah, it's a careful conflict. I think, you know, I yes, there's been a fair few stories about stuff in the last few weeks, but I've also, you know, I wanted to interview Laura Maxwell about her new role and you know what she hoped to achieve, and she graciously did that. That was great, and um, and talked about the changes at the top. Um, you know, and look, I've got to give a shout out to the rest of the NZME newsroom here because, you know, one advantage of a media column is that you've basically, in the case of NZME, I've got 330 contacts basically sitting mm. alongside me, if you like. And so they've been really generous at um, feeding me information as well. It's not just all coming through, you know, to me directly. Um, so I'm very lucky in that respect and a lot different to other columnists. Um, so there's no shortage of um, content I've got to be careful with the NZME in the sense, you know, I'm still coming out of that exec role where I was privy to a lot of strategic information. And so my ethics on both the journalistic and as a leadership side mean that I can't go near that stuff at the moment or ever. Um, but if there's new information that I find out about um, through the business and, um, you know, I'll, I'll, absolutely, it's fair game. And the company knows that and the newsroom knows that. Um, that And that's really important. I've written, you know, some of the challenges that NZME is facing around, uh, you know, in what it's announced at its annual um, shareholders meeting. Um, so I think, you know, you, that's a matter of explaining the role of journalism, um, both internally and externally, and why NZME is as much, um, you know, to be written about as in, anyone else. And if I'm not writing about NZME, others will be, I'm sure. But certainly um, with the stuff leaks, you know, I've got a lot of friends at stuff. I've worked alongside a lot of their uh, leadership team in the past. Um, it's not, there's nothing personal about it. it, it we all realise transformation is happening and that from time to time newsrooms will leak. I remember when we were having our big changes in the early 2015, 16, I was getting a lot of calls from rival media about all these horrible changes going on. Mm. Um, I mean, so uh, the thing that, that really strikes me both about the column and your writing more more generally, you know, the, the uh, you, you, I like the way that you sort of very happily, shamelessly, well, if it's a good idea from, from anywhere, you'll, you'll just um, <laughs> just go and grab it. Lunch with the FT is now yeah. lunch with Shane Curry in New yeah. Zealand, uh, for example. One, yes. one good text is one good text. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you seem to be really, really loving it. Like there, there's a kind of you, a palpable sense of almost joy out of the, the column in particular, but also just you just look at the sheer volume that you create. It sort of feels like two or three reporters in, in one, which um, I'm sure you'll be bringing up with Michael. And, <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, let him know you said that. And, and, and Murray when you're next uh, <laughs> yeah. negotiating your contract. But um, but yeah, are, are you? Is it is it as much fun as it, it looks? Yeah, it totally is. I probably, I you know, and I do need to watch that I don't overwrite. I had um, Kim Knight in my ear the other day and that as well. I've got the newsroom around me who are keeping me in check um, a little bit. Um, so it's a great newsroom. It's great actually being back out in the newsroom. I can finally understand what is going on <laughs> in the business. But no, it is a lot of fun. It's um, it's good to reconnect with a lot of old contacts. It's actually good to get out of the newsroom uh, and be kind of a shoe leather reporter at times and um, and meet the people who, uh, you know, are at the forefront of change or, you know, I've been doing a fair few business profiles aside from the media column. The lunch is fun. The lunches are a lot of fun. The um yeah, all sorts of different people, and I'm keen to carry those on. They're not weekly, but I certainly want to sort of make them a regular appearance. And you're right, shamelessly, you know, stolen from the FT in terms of a format. Nowhere near as well written as the FT's ones. But, oh, but it but feels I, like they get months to put those <laughs> things together. Like, come on. But yeah, it's... Um, 
a lot of fun. And one good text. I made sure that with one good text that Ben Smith was the very first um, subject given he invented the um, format and the technique. He was very gracious to, to answer it. Uh, this also just shows off your your contact book in a way. It's it's a flex. Um, so let, before before we go, I just want to kind of get your perspective on a couple of uh, big bigger kind of media industry stories, I guess that that have kind of preoccupied me in this podcast and in our industry. Um, the 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 first being the sort of impact of the public interest journalism fund on some of the things that you referred to earlier on on the the trust in in the media and perceptions of how the actual business is conducted yeah and I I think you know I think I saw was it you and and Mary uh, you know like sort of addressing some of that in a in like a live reader session potentially at one point what what has for a bigger organization like yours how did that um, you know how do you think that went in the end reflecting on it now yeah I look now the PIG fund is now finished Um, I look back on it now and just think why was it ever badged as public interest journalism NZ on air, of course, as we all know, has been funding not just RNZ, but a lot of media companies, including our own, for many years on different projects and um, interesting journalism um, stories and so forth. And so suddenly, as a result of COVID, the specialised fund was kind of badged, and I think that was the worst mistake, mm. followed up by the fact the industry itself, we didn't sell it as a... And so it allowed the conspiracy theorists to go down a pathway that just um, should never have existed, saying that the government had some kind of editorial control or direction over our journalism and content. Absolute rubbish. Uh, and, you know, and it's, I'm just sad that politicians, opposition politicians, picked up that line as well. It just was not helpful for the industry. Um, I've, I've said the line many times, I'll say it again now, that if any of our journalists, editors, felt that they were being influenced by the government, there'd be a walkout. You know, we wouldn't our newsroom wouldn't be staffed. It's also just proportional to the scale of the revenues of the industry. Fifty million over three years, pretty minor, pretty minor. Yeah, really. we're, we're talking. Um, if we're going to sell out percentages, let's let's make it a billion dollars. <laughs> all right, like, let's, you yeah. know, if if we're going to be under someone's control. Um, quickly, the the Google News Showcase deals, which you uh, signed relatively early on, in completely uncontroversial circumstances, and no one ever made comments yes. to the international press. Gazette uh, anonymously about that, to, to, to be clear. Um, but um, recently you've seen Melissa Lee make statements that this is a, effectively a tax in in another guise and, and kind of essentially looking at the piece of legislation which is ongoing, which effectively will only be triggered if uh, if these deals were to, were to, were to lapse, you know, I personally think that's quite misguided, and that 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 these this legislation is pretty much mission critical for a sustainable journalism in in New Zealand now. What would you say to to the likes of of um, Melissa Lee or opposition politicians who maybe haven't been as engaged with that process? Yeah, I um I just encourage Melissa to get alongside Michael Boggs as soon as possible and understand the business economics here. It's all well and good that early deals have been done, but the industry most definitely needs legislative backup. To to help us uh, in future. And that's not just the Google and Metas, by the way. You know, already some of the big overseas media corporations are, you know, quite rightly talking to Google and Microsoft about AI. Absolutely. And, and needing, and we're talking billions here. Um, the, the deals so far, I think, you know, some of the scope's been announced, but uh, we most definitely need that legislative backup. And um, 
the sooner you know, all politicians from all parties recognise that, the better. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a job to be done there to educate them. Yeah, and you sort of go, like, do, do you want to have coverage of Parliament? <laughs> Would you like people to know what you do? Some of them might not, but, you know, <laughs> but we most definitely, you know, as we know. As a society, I think we oh, do. Oh, totally. Yep. And, um, you know, that, that comes back to some basic journalistic principles, doesn't it? It does, it does. Um, lastly, where do you think... All this is heading, you know, we, we, the, the, you just touched on the AI stuff. That's been a big preoccupation of, of mine on this podcast this year. I sort of go back and forth about whether I've sort of paid too much attention to it. And, you know, but but fundamentally, as you alluded to earlier, there there is a, a great sense of, of change kind of flowing through the news media and the, and the media more broadly. And it feels like there's an unusually wide vector between a kind of a a scenario where we are all just fully digitally transitioned and and the work is high quality and finding its audience versus one where there's just a continual erosion of revenues and audiences and, and platforms that kind of say one thing and then um, move their behaviours as we've seen most, most prominently with Facebook. You know, you, you said earlier you're optimistic. What is the case for optimism about yeah. uh, uh, the local media? Well, we dropped a really good nugget at our annual shareholders meeting earlier this year and that our premium subscriptions will now can now fund our newsroom on their own. Our, the revenue that we get each year can fund our newsroom. So, that, And we're just at very early days still of premium digital journalism and we think the size of the market is quite actually large in New Zealand for a digital subscription. So I'm optimistic on that front. I'm optimistic about what I see at different media companies and the transformations happening at the likes of TVNZ and the business plan that they've got in terms of, you know, on demand and streaming services around and the types of content that they're already producing. I think TVNZ Plus is superb. I think that there's great people um, leading the charge in different media businesses around that quality and trust, including our own, including the spin-off, you know, um, and others. You know, we it's in our hearts. We, you know, we we our principles are dear to us, and we did a lot of work last year on our own code of conduct and quality and trust. I do think, yes, we've got come through three or four years of a very polarised society. I think there will still be forever people on the outer boundaries, but I think there'll be fewer people on the outer boundaries. I think there will be kind of um, more people coming coming into the centre and relying on good quality in depth journalism. Oh, I hope you're right. Hey, Shane, thanks so much for, for agreeing to come on The Fold. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I speak for many listeners of the, this podcast when I say that we're, we're eagerly awaiting tomorrow's, as we record this edition of Media Insider. So no pressure. You just got to keep go those scripts coming. Go yeah, you better go and write it. Thanks so much for <laughs> thanks, coming Thanks, Thank you. That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O-Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Kia ora e te iwi, te Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.